0: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. The 70-year-old patient lay threaded through the tubes of a George Washington University hospital bed, recovering from a gunshot that had pierced his lung. He'd lost half his blood in an internal hemorrhage, and he was still weak. But he was not so spent that he could not whisper along with his Irish Catholic visitor, who had knelt to pray for him. They said the twenty third psalm The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. The bullet had come within an inch of the patient's heart. Death had been closer than all but the tightest circle of his intimates had known. That circle had to be tight because the exterior circle of interested parties was large a country of nearly 300 million, who had elected the patient, the 40th President of the United States, just four months earlier. Had he died, the man kneeling in prayer would have been the next in line after the Vice President to replace him. When Speaker of the House Tip O'Neill had finished praying, he hauled himself back up and bent his six foot three, 300-pound frame over the bed and kissed President Ronald Reagan on the forehead. I'd better be going, he said. I don't want to tire you out. This is the story of Tip and the Gipper, bitter enemies, political rivals, and friends. We'll get to it in a minute, but first, a word from our sponsor. If you're just starting out in politics, the cliché and bromide book you receive on your first day contains a story about cooperation between two politicians that leads the section in that book on bipartisanship. Now, this would be the volume of Cliche and Bromide published before the current volume, where there is no chapter on bipartisanship. Editors determined no office holder would need it today. The well worn story is the tale of how Republican President Ronald Reagan and Democratic Speaker of the House Tip O'Neill worked together to save Social Security. The story has soaked so deep into the public consciousness that you can see it in the headlines nearly every year for the last many. For example, can Donald Trump learn from Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill, reads a New Yorker headline from 2017. From 2015, a Hill newspaper headline reads how Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan could make this Congress work. 2010, Tip O'Neill and Reagan, a model for breaking partisan gridlock. 2009, bipartisan Reagan-O'Neill social security deal in 1983 showed it can be done. It's a hearty favorite that I feel like I've heard a thousand times on the campaign trail. As politicians who make calls for bipartisanship seek to give their audiences an actual example of how it can work using familiar names we know. And so it was just again last month in October of 2018 when Mitch McConnell, the Republican majority leader of the Senate, pulled the old hymnal off the shelf and referred to the commission that two politicians had formed to address the challenges to Social Security. McConnell said, think of Reagan and Tip O'Neill coming together in the early 80s to raise the age for Social Security. It took it out of the political arena and made it possible to be successful. But what does this story really mean of O'Neill and Reagan? Does the Senate leader McConnell have it right? Do those headline writers have it right? Can strong members of both parties simply get together and work things out the way O'Neill and Reagan did? Maybe, but those who would like to conjure the success of the past have more to do than simply whisper the names of Reagan and O'Neill. I mean, we must look at the ingredients that led to the success, the Eye of Newt, goat entrails, and pistachio foam, in order to identify if those ingredients are available today. Can we just nip down to the Kroger's and get them? Or are they no longer on the store shelves? What was it about this relationship that allowed it to work? What about the people around those two men? And what was it about politics at the time that constrained and guided those two singular figures? They fought and biggered in a way that would seem very familiar today. What pulled them back into a working relationship? It was more than simply flicking a switch. They were both pulled by notions of bipartisanship and an ordering of priorities about country and party, as well as a fellow feeling, all of which is hard to see in politics today. This is the story of two Irishmen of humble roots who met at the end of one era of American politics and the start of another, the dawn of conservative ascendancy in American government and the start of the twilight of the old liberal order. These two men were warriors, but not simply for their party, but for their view of the world. They operated during a time when those two things were distinct. Ideology crossed party lines. You had conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans. In politics, you had to look beyond what jersey the person wore, to know what they believed. This, among other things, meant those people actually believed something. A politician who believes something, more than just what party do you come from, can be appealed to by using the tools that helped him build that belief. Reason, tradition, history, patriotism. These are the inroads for negotiation among adversaries. Some of these roads are closed today. Reagan was a believer in the free market. O'Neill was a believer in the power of government to improve the lives of those less fortunate and to protect those the free market would ignore or trample. Reagan was a man of the open prairie in the West, O'Neill a man of the crowded cities. But they were both optimistic, romantic, and shared basic beliefs about making political deals. We hear a lot in politics today about getting people in the room and hammering out a compromise. Well, these two actually did that. It was not perfect. It was hard, full of failures, switchbacks, acrimony. But after the scrum, there were achievements. Whereas today, on the big issues of our time, we mostly just have the scrum. For decades, we have piled deficit upon deficit, mortgaging our future and our children's future for the temporary convenience of the present. To continue this long trend is to guarantee tremendous social, cultural, political and economic upheavals. At his inauguration in 1981, Ronald Reagan sounded the themes that had brought him to Washington. The election of 1980 offered a right angle in American politics. It wasn't just the elevation of a president who promised to manage the government from the left or right. Ronald Reagan promised to pare down government altogether, reshaping its role in American life. As he famously said... Government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. After 50 years of liberal dominance, Reagan was a conservative coming to Washington on a wave of discontent with that liberal order. And let's define our terms here. By liberal, we mean those who favor using government as an instrument to make people's lives better. By conservative, we mean not a moderate Republican who believes that the federal government can be used more efficiently or more wisely for the activities different than the way the Democrats want. But we mean a Republican who believes that the federal government is wasteful, limits freedom of the individual, at the very least by taxing that individual, and a government that gets in the way of private charity and the free market, which if allowed to flourish will lead to a greater share of human happiness. If Reagan came to the first year of the 1980s whisking under a bright Hollywood grand opening marquee, the Democrats returned to the city where they had reigned dominant deep in the dumpers. The fortunes of the Democratic Party had fallen quickly since the resounding victories for Democrats in the wake of Watergate and Ford's pardon of Richard Nixon. As John Farrell writes in Tip O'Neill and the Democratic Century, after a fine first year as Speaker, with the passage of ethics and energy packages, O'Neill's performance had lapsed to adequate in 1978 and then to piteous in 1979 and 1980. We'd run out of ideas, said Representative Gillis Long of Louisiana, the chairman of the Democratic Caucus. For four years, we've been living in a dream world. The electorate had punished the Democrats with a clanging blow. In 1980, the GOP won the White House, the Senate, after Democrats lost 12 seats, and there was a 34-seat game in the House of Representatives. This was known as the Reagan Revolution. For House Speaker Tip O'Neill, the election victory and rising wind of conservatism wasn't just a sad thing, and it wasn't simply a turn in the back and forth of things. It was a deep challenge to a vision of government that he devoted his life to, a government that lent a hand to the worker down on his luck, that kept the widow from privation and healed the sick, no matter how poor. O'Neill's leadership aide, Bert Hoffman, wrote the Speaker a note about his new role. Until such time as we nominate a new presidential candidate, you are the leader of the Democratic Party, as well as the highest public official of that party. You are also more than ever the only person in a position to continue representing the ideals of justice and compassion. This again from John Farrell's Tip O'Neill in the Democratic Century. It's one of the books I'm leaning on here. You'll remember Farrell's book on Nixon also, Got a good workout in previous whistle stops, so you should check him out. Buy the whole set. So, we have a big election and an ideological transformation that still defines American politics today. But how did this play out in practice once the whistle blew? Well, we'll focus on three domestic issues in these whistle stops on Reagan and O'Neill. That's right, there's more than one episode. The budget, taxes, and Social Security. Now, they're all closely related. The federal budget, which encompasses taxes and Social Security, is the instrument for setting government priorities. Do we care more about the threat from the Soviets more than we do the desire to help the poor? Budgets also put the focus on government effectiveness. Do we think that the poor are most helped or best helped by a government program? Or is there another way, either through a more efficient government approach, nudges rather than direct handouts, or through a non-governmental avenue completely? Reagan had promised to lower taxes, strip regulations, and increase defense spending. Sounds familiar. This, of course, was the essence of the Trump platform as well when you looked at it from a policy perspective. Important caveat, their views on immigration are wholly opposite. Reagan would be seen as uh, an amnesty-loving, open-borders squish by the terms of the current debate. Reagan promised a government that would get off your back, take less of your money, and focus more on its core goal, protecting you. But let's not make this sound too anodyne. The economy was in tough shape. Unemployment was at 7.5% when Reagan came into office. That meant that the national debates about accounting and budgets were really about whether the government was going to shrink at the expense of the people who needed government help the most in a weak economy, the poor, the elderly, the mentally ill. What Reagan said was bloating and slowing the economy, Democrats saw as the necessary functioning of government as it had been reshaped by FDR, as Roosevelt repaired the country and shifted its mission after the devastation of the Great Depression, which Democrats saw as the result of a rampant and free-floating free market. That's the way Democrats saw it. But the reason this revolution and conservative upswing was taking place is that there were lots of examples of Democrats who had in office for that protracted amount of time reclined into simply protecting themselves. That they stayed in power and had become comfortable with its perquisites. Ten-cent word. Delivering bloated federal pork projects to their constituents at home. Let's take another run at that sentence. Students, if we might. They had stayed in power and had become comfortable with lobbyist steak lunches at the Palm Restaurant and the attention at parades and factory openings back home in their districts. So those were the stakes for these debates about the budget, taxes, and Social Security. But let's pause on the stakes for a moment. The Reagan-O'Neill story is about big fights on big things and also achievement and cooperation on big things. In our current climate, leaders of the party in power will point to bipartisan achievement on smaller, little pieces of legislation as proof that the institution is working. But that's not the same as when you have cooperation on the big, fundamental fights of American politics. Now, let's focus on two elements that are a key part of this story that we don't really have in politics today so much, or that are, dec- well, we definitely don't have one, the other is uh, in a weakened condition. And those two elements are norms and numbers. There were ways of behaving in politics and personal life that constrained both Reagan and O'Neill in this drama, and that drew them back to the negotiating table with each other. Those are the standards, the norms, the patterns of behavior that are a part of the basic contract we make in civil and public life. The word norm is a bit of a bummer because every time you heard a professor use the word norm in class, it was like a little tiny signal that you could basically ignore the pile of words that he was going to offer you afterwards because it was just self-soothing talk. But it is important because a norm essentially means I won't press every maximum advantage because I recognize if everyone did that, that it would start us on the road to chaos. These standards that we talk about in politics can seem like decorum and etiquette, which might relegate them simply to the old elite protective drawing room rules of the country club and the dining club and the Jane Austen novel. But as we'll see, these standards, these norms, these patterns of behavior encouraged generosity, humility, and duty to larger values, all of which are the requirements for progress in these Divided government negotiations. At the moment, we are in a time of shredding norms. President Trump has his hand on the chipper shredder, and the political system is responding. The president is focused on getting things done, say his supporters, and opposition to his norm-breaking is simply elites worried about propriety. The alternative view is that as the president coarsens the office, he chokes off, shrivels, and chars the pathways that Reagan and, o- and O'Neill used to develop a relationship and make progress. Here's how this argument goes. When the president breaks a norm, his party is tied to him more tightly than in the past. This draws the whole party to into the norm shredding business. So when the president airs an ad on major networks labeled as racist, those networks didn't air the ad because it was labeled as racist. And then the Republican governor of Ohio and the outgoing Republican senator from Arizona also labeled it as racist. This doesn't matter to the head of the Republican Party who is in lockstep with the president. So the head of the Republican Party champions the ad. Now, party chairs, aren't. there wasn't a time when party chairs broke so much with the president. That's not terribly new. But what is new is that the president stakes out a position of the kind that President Trump has. And the adhesion of party loyalty is what changes the system. And that's how a president's normative behavior sets the collective normative behavior of a party. And it's in this way that we think about the character of the individual occupant of the office. That's how it gets amplified to an entire political system. We talk a lot about character in office. This magnifying effect is why character is important. In response to shifting norms, Democrats are encouraged to fight fire with fire. So during the fall of 2018 nomination hearing of President, the president's Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, the Democratic Party was swept behind the unfounded and immediately suspect claims about Kavanaugh promoted by lawyer uh, Michael Avenatti. In a gutter fight with the president, so disliked by the party, the niceties of the past were cast aside in order to support the extraordinary claims of Avenatti and his client, which, all, which turned out to be without merit. Under normal circumstances, Democrats might not have rushed behind and talked about in an open uh, committee hearing those crazy claims, but they did in this case because of the nature of political combat as it now exists. So. What norms did O'Neill and Reagan play by? The first was that O'Neill recognized that what had just happened in the election. The people had spoken, and he, though he was in the opposite party, had an obligation to shape the result, not block it. So he had an obligation to sh- to let the people continue to speak through the political process, not simply block it. This is the take of both John Farrell, his book about O'Neill, and Chris Matthews, who worked for O'Neill and wrote a book called Tip and the Gipper, when Politics Worked. Also a good book. So the people had spoken and O'Neill wasn't going to do everything possible to block the president's a- agenda. He was going to try and shape it. But he, pr- he put in primacy not the party, but the sound and signal that he had gotten and that everyone had gotten from the country. Congressman Charlie Stenholm of Texas, a conservative who often uh, fought with O'Neill, saw it this way too. He wrote, Tip recognized that the people of America had voted for change and the new president deserved a chance to pass his agenda. Now, that's the gauzy way to put it. Another less heroic way to look at this is to say that O'Neill didn't want to look obstructionist. In other words, it wasn't his warm-hearted views about representative democracy that he was following. He just didn't want to look bad. But even that is a norm that we don't see today. So let's imagine for a moment this was O'Neill's motivation. Implicit in it is that voters would punish the congressional majority for trying to obstruct a newly elected president. Here's how Farrell writes about it in his book: After Reagan's election, O'Neill worried that his party might be punished in nineteen in the nineteen eighty two midterms if it came to be perceived as needlessly obstructionist. So here you have bipartisan cooperation connected with the desires of the voting population and of course a primary goal for any speaker of the house is to save the house for his party to keep to stay in the majority so the virtuous act of letting reagan's program through the congress was also connected to this single important political imperative which was to hold control of the house stop the music you do hear music right there's not a soundtrack playing swelling violins Never mind. The reason we want to stop the music is that this is an important difference between the politics that allowed this partnership to exist, even though it was a push and pull and struggle, versus the politics of today, which is a push and pull and struggle, but without the partnership part. O'Neill didn't want to appear obstructionist, whether it was because he had virtuous restraint or understood the political reality. But when Barack Obama was president, the Senate and House leaders defined their jobs in precisely the opposite way early in Barack Obama's tenure Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, said, quote, the single most important thing we want to achieve is for President Obama to be a one-term president. In July of 2013, John Boehner told Bob Schieffer on Face the Nation that Congress should not be judged by what he had done, but by what it had kept Barack Obama from doing. Uh, we should not be judged on how many new laws we create. We ought to be judged on how many laws that we repeal. We're in a divided government. We're fighting for what we believe in. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, the American people don't like this mess. Now, are these men less virtuous than Tip O'Neill? If you believe that O'Neill's instincts in 1981 were driven by the Federalist papers that he clutched to his breast, then you say I. If you believe O'Neill was responding to a system where voters punished lawmakers who were obstructionists, then you can say that the system of politics that rewards politicians for their behavior has changed... And the current leaders are just responding to that change. You don't ask a man who is employed to swim to do anything but paddle in the waters he finds himself in. Boehner and McConnell are responding to the base of their party that punishes those that are seen as capitulating with the enemy. The enemy, in this case, was Barack Obama. Why was he the enemy? He'd been defined that way by a conservative media culture with greater reach and influence than anything that was available in the days of Tip O'Neill. And Ronald Reagan. To the extent that O'Neill, as a liberal, was influenced by the quote unquote liberal media, it's important to note further in our account here when we get to the Time magazine story, but also just in general, that O'Neill felt like the media was on a bandwagon all behind Ronald Reagan. So that there was no left wing pressure mechanism that would put pressure on Democrats if they cooperated with Ronald Reagan. The same way there is a media mechanism that would put pressure on Republicans if they had cooperated with Barack Obama. Now, wherever you choose to come down on these historical questions, it's clear that the norms have shifted wildly and that the leaders are pushed around by forces that make an O'Neill-Reagan-type deal far, far more difficult today than in the past, if not impossible. That also means that commissions that are formed to take the politics out of policy decisions, as Mitch McConnell referred to, have to, in their whatever result they come up with, have to overcome this new world of fallen, fallen norms. Such a report from an outside voice has a lot, lot more to overcome, but, but I'm getting ahead of myself here. Now, there's another reason that O'Neill couldn't buck Reagan completely in 1981. He didn't have the numbers. Democrats controlled the House 244 to 191. For Reagan to pass anything, he needed at least 26 Democrats on every bill, but he could get that because there were as many as 40 to 70 Democrats who came from districts that were favorable to Reagan. A more official account of this group of Democrats from which Reagan could draw were that 47 Democrats belonged to the Conservative Democratic Forum. That was the formal name for the boll-weevil Democrats. So that there were 21 more boll-weevil Democrats than Reagan than the 26 Reagan needed. And these conservative boll-weevils who Reagan could call on, even though the Democrats controlled Congress, were part of the ongoing transition that was taking part in the Democratic Party. So in addition to Northeastern liberals, the Democratic Party contained these Southern and Midwestern conservatives. So O'Neill was in a bit of a bind. He had to seem like he was cooperating enough with Reagan to to keep those conservative members on his side so that O'Neill could influence policy. Because if he lost them, they would just go vote with the Republicans and do whatever Reagan wanted. And O'Neill would lose any ability to influence the final piece of legislation. Also, O'Neill had his eye on the prize. He needed those conservative Democrats to have enough votes and do enough things with Reagan to get reelected back home because they were in districts where Reagan had won the presidential vote and where people quite liked Reagan. So, O'Neill was willing to let them go do things that would keep them in good standing at home because they would ultimately be elected as D's. That would make Democrats continue the Democratic majority in the House, and that meant that O'Neill was Speaker uh, and, and could continue to influence things. So here's another point where our narrative diverges from the current moment. Everything I've just described to you relies on the fact that O'Neill would hold votes in which pieces of legislation were prepared to pass without the majority of the majority party. And this was legislation on big-ticket items. In recent Republican-controlled congresses, the quote-unquote Hastert rule has been loosely followed since 2003, in which the majority will not put a bill on the floor unless it has a majority of the majority. Now, the instances where that had been broken have tended to be emergency funding measures voted on after shutdowns or near shutdowns to keep the government operating. And when John Boehner did this, he did it more um, than, than Ryan, he was highly criticized by his conservative members who saw the votes that he allowed that passed with Democratic support as capitulation. And that's ultimately what drove Boehner from the House. And as he left, he criticized the false promises, the false prophets, he called them. And the false promise was it was this idea among conservatives that basically it was an act of will or a lack of will that was keeping Republicans from being able to get the votes on the kinds of legislation they wanted. Boehner's argument was, no, we just don't have the votes. Now, going back to 1981, here's how Charlie Stenholm, the leader of the bull weevil Democrats, wrote about The situation in Congress. The 1981 budget battles were hard fought, but every member who had an idea was given an opportunity to put it to a vote. What he's saying there is the the leadership of the Democratic Party didn't strangle them and didn't keep them from offering their ideas and putting it up for a vote. Back to Stenholm. After all of the voting, a budget was passed with bipartisan support, and those recorded votes became ammunition for opponents to use in the 82 elections, as well they should have been. So what he's basically saying is, let Congress do its job. You put out amendments, the amendments are either voted up or down, a bill passes, either up or down, and uh, lawmakers either suffer the consequences or are cheered for it at the ballot box when it comes voting time. That's the way it's supposed to work. So what Stanholm is talking about is a process where people were allowed to offer amendments without party litmus tests, which ended up... Building support for a measure because, in the end, a lawmaker might vote for a measure he doesn't like particularly overall, but because it contained his bauble, his Christmas tree ornament, his little piece of tinsel, um, he'd vote for the overall thing because he liked the piece of tinsel and wanted it to pass. Another note here before we move on: the Democratic Party has obviously lost the boll weevil element, uh, and 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 so this is another way in which. Um, The political landscape is just wholly different today than it was during the Reagan period. And also, obviously, the Democratic Party has become more vocal and more connected to both the civil rights movement and also uh, women and minorities being in power. The reason I mention this is in 1981, Democrats were obviously the party of civil rights, but certain things got overlooked in a way that – it would be hard to imagine them being overlooked today. So, for example, example, Ronald Reagan opened his general election campaign at the Mississippi Fairgrounds just down the road from where three civil rights workers had been slaughtered in 1964. And in that speech, the president says, I believe in state right, states' rights. So the Democrats at the time thought this was a racial dog whistle. But in today's politics, this kind of appeal by Reagan would mean any Democratic leader with a who dealt with this future president, dealt with a president who made those kinds of appeals, would have to answer for why they were working with somebody who had employed that kind of strategy. So there were pressures that didn't work on O'Neill that would certainly work on a Democratic leader today if the situations were simply ported into the present moment. So how did O'Neill make things easier for Reagan? Here's John Farrell. The Speaker had the parliamentary power over scheduling to delay the process but chose not to. O'Neill guaranteed the president a schedule of consideration of the president's economic and budget and tax programs, which gave the upper hand to Reagan because it lay within the honeymoon period. The budget fight took part in the open, but also in the closed doors, with Chief of Staff James Baker working tirelessly with Tip O'Neill and his staff to try to work through some of these issues. When O'Neill had made the good offers of cooperation, he expected Reagan and the Republicans to offer a budget with big cuts in spending and and, uh, tax cuts and also you know, a lot of money for defense, but he thought he'd be able to shave it into something more reasonable because the Democrats did still control the Democratic uh, the budget committee and the budget process. But Reagan ended up offering a much more robust and adventuresome budget than O'Neill had expected. And so uh, the House budget process was not simply an effort to shave into a nearby compromise, uh, but O'Neill and liberals in the party uh, Really, now felt like the House Budget Committee had to stop uh, uh, huge chunks of the Reagan budget. It so, and this is what got heated during all the back and forth as it was getting heated, and 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 heated by heated. We're talking about you know O'Neill calling Reagan Hoover with a smile and accusing him of basically starving the poor and leaving out uh, the widow. And so while he's hammering him about what his budgets will do to the most vulnerable among us they were still seeing each other socially. You could see the conflict in, in Reagan's diary. So on the one hand, he writes about a phone call in which Tip was all bluster. And in uh, another entry, he says, Tip O'Neill is getting rough, so I'm on TV telling the United Steelworkers Union I am going to destroy the nation. But then in other entries, he writes about a private evening at the White House and a small dinner of six, which included O'Neill and his wife. And he writes, it was a nice evening, but maybe Tip and I told too many Irish stories. Based on everything I've read, the two basically, when they got together, told, like, endless Irish jokes. Um, Reagan also, in his diary, records a surprise birthday cake that O'Neill and House Majority Jim Wright deliver to him. So you have this this mix, this thing going on, a huge public fighting, but in the private, still in touch with one another. In intimate settings, not, you know, these big um, White House visits that don't mean anything. Then, on March 30th, 1981, at 2.30 in the afternoon, after a lunch given by the National Conference on the Building and Construction Trades, John Hinckley took six shots at Reagan with a 22 pistol. Only one bullet hit, hit President Reagan. didn't hit him directly. It ricocheted off a car, but it hit his lung. And it was that that led to the scene that opened our whistle-stop. It was Jim Baker, the chief of staff,'s decision to have O'Neill be the first public official to visit the president in the hospital room in order to, as Chris Matthews puts it, to honor the American political system. Again, that's a norm. The the idea of constantly tending to the norms of bipartisanship, the norms of cooperation, the norms of a political system that exists outside of the cut and thrust between left and right, that is thick throughout this history of these two men. All three of those things either don't exist or are in a highly weakened state at the moment. Now, this moment also created a lot of sympathy for the president and gave the president a greater upper hand in budget negotiations. And so in the end, Reagan, in cooperation with conservative Democrats, completely overwhelmed O'Neill's efforts to pass a budget that was more friendly to his rank and file. Years later, uh, O'Neill's right hand man, Jim Wright, congressman from Texas, admitted, quote, Tip and I got rolled. We said, let's treat him well. Let's try to deal with him as Rayburn and Johnson were to Eisenhower. Let's show him around and help him learn the ropes. You know, we were going to be father advisors and all that smart stuff. Little did we know, that son of a bitch rolled us. God, did Reagan ever. If you quote me, I didn't say son of a bitch. I said that charming old thespian rolled us. But God, did he ever. Here's how Time wrote about this big first budget fight, the big first test of these two massive ideological... Uh, forces clashing against each other. As Farrell writes about it, it's the hot lava hitting the foaming sea. Here's how Time wrote about the president's victory in the budget fight. Ronald Reagan's velvet steamroller smashed through the Democratic House of Representatives last week, flattening opposition to his radical plan to curtail federal spending. As a result, his even more controversial tax cut proposals stand a good chance of gaining final congressional approval this summer. The president's victory in the House budget fight was decisive. Not a single Republican deserted his party, while 63 Democrats abandoned theirs. That gave Reagan a 77-vote margin in the 253-176 to roll call, on which a Reagan-endorsed budget proposal replaced a more moderate cutback recommended by the House Budget Committee. After the success of Reagan's first budget, O'Neill was in trouble. He was seen as weak and rudderless. There was speculation he might not even keep the Speaker's job. A May 1981 Time Magazine story carried this title Tip O'Neill on the Ropes. And it epitomized really the low point of the media's uh, opposition to O'Neill and uh, support for the president. And I should note here that a good chunks of this account, and uh, uh, even though I didn't go into all the detail about the budget fight, my understanding rather in depth about the specific budget fight come from Carl Gerard Brandt's book, Ronald Reagan and the House Democrats, Gridlock, Partisanship, and the Fiscal Crisis. That's that's kind of the third or, well, fourth, I guess, if you include the diaries, um, main book here in addition to uh, all the newspaper articles and, and clippings on this. That's um, that's a part of this narrative. A quote by Wisconsin Democrat Les Aspen opened the Time magazine piece, and this is the quote. Tip O'Neill is a good friend of mine. He garnered a reputation as one of the strongest speakers in our history. But now, I regret to say, Tip is reeling on the ropes. He's in a fog. He's not part of what is happening and has no idea of where to go. That was a letter from Aspen to his constituents, which meant then that the energy of politics was now working against O'Neill. It was now necessary for some Democrats, or they felt it was necessary anyway, to to run against the Speaker in order to protect themselves. The, The piece continued, the Time magazine piece continued, At that moment, it was clear that the nation's most powerful Democrat had been badly, perhaps even fatally, wounded. It was obvious that he still had an emotional hold on the House, but the hold is loosening now, and it looks very much as if the job Tip O'Neill has worked a lifetime for is offering challenges he cannot meet. O'Neill was glum. By the way, this was back when Time magazine was Time magazine. So when Time magazine said something, there wasn't, there was no internet this was the equivalent of like a week's worth of the New York Times. It drove the Sunday show coverage. It drove the producers on the televisions. It drove the political conversation. So getting a bad story in Time magazine meant something. O'Neill himself was pretty glum. Asked by a constituent at home around this time how things were going, he replied, I'm getting the shit wailed out of me. Here's how Chris Matthews puts this period. Suddenly, Tip O'Neill, the veteran liberal, found himself in a position like that of Ronald Reagan back in the 1960s, when his own party had little interest in hearing what he had to say. So O'Neill went on the offensive. As a guest on ABC's Issues and Answers on June 7th, remember the budget passes in about in May, O'Neill denounced the Reagan tax cuts as, quote, a windfall for the rich. I'm opposed to the Reagan tax bill, he said, because it's geared for the wealthy of the nation instead of being spread out among the working class of America and the poor people. The president truly, in my opinion, doesn't understand the working class of middle America, what it's all about, what they go through, because of the fact he doesn't associate himself with those types of people. He has no concern, no regard, no care for the little man of America. Just a brief little aside, the little man, the forgotten man, Very much in the center of this debate here, the Reagan Democrats were working class Democrats that had gone to Reagan, left the Republican Party, talked about in not terribly dissimilar ways from those Democrats who left the party and voted for President Trump. President Trump talks about the forgotten man. Democrats, many of them believe that there are policy prescriptions that they should talk about, which would help them with the um, forgotten man. Okay, so Reagan hears this and boom, he responds in a press conference. I grew up in poverty and I got what education I got all by myself. And I think it's sheer demagoguery to pretend that this economic program is not aimed at helping the great cross-section of people in this country that has been burdened for too long by big government and high taxes. Sheer demagoguery. What does that sound like to you in today's ears, in today's politics? If someone, if the president said the word sheer demagoguery, how many, how big a deal would that be relative to the uh, nature of the things the president says? Okay, how do you fix that in your mind? All right, here's Chris Matthews writing about this political moment and the norms that existed at the time. Chris Matthews writes this. Reagan's phrase was nothing less than a shocking insult. The Speaker of the House stands second after the vice president in the line of presidential succession. And to him, Reagan's slur was an attack not only on him, Tip O'Neill, but on the historic dignity of the office he now held. So O'Neill does something he doesn't much do because, you know, one of the subtexts here, we'll get into this in the next part. But one of the subtexts here is you have this amazingly uh, telegenic actor on one end of the stage here. And then you have Tip O'Neill, who's a, kind of a, you know, he's a ward politician. He's not a TV guy. Well, at this moment, he goes up to the radio and television gallery that's in the house, goes in front of the cameras and says, I would never accuse a president, whoever he was, of being a demagogue. I have too much respect for the president, for the institution, and I assume in the future he would have the same respect for the speakership. What is this a fight about? It is a fight about norms. It is a fight about what people might dismiss as simple propriety. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. They get into a big fight about this. And think about that way that exists today. Okay, so now you have a big big fight over the fact that President uh, Reagan has used the term sheer demagoguery. And oh, by the way, he's responding to an attack from O'Neill that says basically he doesn't care about poor people. So... I bring you now a UPI story from Tuesday the 16th of 1981. On Tuesday, President Reagan and House Speaker Thomas Tip O'Neill exchanged bitter words over taxes and budget matters. Today, Reagan telephoned O'Neill and said he still wants to be friends. I had a very interesting phone call from the president. O'Neill told reporters this morning without discussing the details. O'Neill said the talk was exceptionally friendly. At a news conference Tuesday, Reagan labeled sheer demagoguery, a statement by the Massachusetts Democrat that the president's economic program ignores the needs of working people. O'Neill then declared that Reagan's honeymoon with Congress was over. That's another thing O'Neill had actually said in the radio and television gallery. But today, the two old pals had a nice talk. I told him there was no way I would ever insult the office of the presidency or make any verbal attack on him or his family, O'Neill declared, summing up the telephone call by saying, Politics is politics. We may disagree during the day, but come 6 p.m., we become friends. Well, now, there's an interesting idea. First of all, we should note that what O'Neill successfully did was first-class umbrage-taking, right? He took offense at something the president said. So that's, you know, that's a tactic. That's a strategy. It's not, this is not without the thick wash of politics all over it. But to even take umbrage, there has to be a bridge to be taken. Reagan found the issue worrisome enough, the issue of propriety, what you say about your political opponent, the institutions of the American system that would be bruised in the result. He found it worrisome enough to place that phone call to O'Neill. Here we see a norm inside which both of them are operating. You would just not see that today. Years later, in an interview with Bill Buckley, Reagan reflected on his relationship with Tip and this line, politics is politics. One day, I picked up the paper and read where he had made a statement about me that was (laughs) uh, pretty harsh. And I called him, and I said, Tip, I thought we had a relationship here where we could do business together and all, and now I read in the paper that you said, and he interrupted me and said, well, old buddy, that's just politics. He said, after 6 o'clock, we're buddies, we're friends. With tip, I did take it that every once in a while when we had a meeting, I would visibly set my watch (laughs) at above 6 (laughs) o'clock. One of the things we're trying to figure out here in this episode and the next one is whether any of this could happen again. Well... There aren't bull weevil Democrats, and there aren't party-switching Republicans, really. So that's one thing that doesn't exist. But there also isn't two other things that exist in this phone call between Reagan and O'Neill. The first is Reagan's picking up the phone and calling. But that's that's really only part of it. That's kind of the end of the stage, because it starts before that phone call. Reagan and O'Neill had a relationship that started before that. The intimate dinner, the birthday cake, the Irish stories, all the stuff we read about in Reagan's diary there was something that united the two men more than than that divided them that was a sense of common humanity fellow feeling trust patriotism they were huge ideologues they believed totally opposite things they fought like hell in public but they had that was not the complete definition of their lives the the fact that they had this personal connection was a pre-existing foundation that allowed reagan to make the phone call and have it be more than a pro forma or useless phone call. That's why these just-add-water calls to replicate the O'Neill and Reagan thing are off the mark. It's not the picking up the phone that makes the difference. It's all the stuff that came before and the political environment that allowed a speaker to go to the White House for dinners and social functions and not be seen as a capitulator or someone who cared more about bobbing in the White House pool over the cares of his constituents. Humanity was allowed in a sphere outside politics. And that set the conditions for the call, and it's what O'Neill was referring to when he suggested there were two spheres, the political sphere and the personal sphere. This is from Tip O'Neill's son. What both men deplored more than each other's political philosophy was stalemate, and a country that was so polarized by by ideology and party politics that it could not move forward. There were tough words and important disagreements, yet a stronger commitment to getting things done. So that's what brought the two men back on the beam, but... While O'Neill did believe that Reagan deserved to have his program voted on, he didn't stop supporting his party or its ideas. He just believed, as Farrell writes about, that Reagan would ultimately overreach and that would help Democrats politically. And that's what would ultimately happen. And at the center of it was that FDR program that was at the center of that liberal view of American government, Social Security. And that will be the center of our next tale about the relationship between Tip and the Gipper. That's it for this edition of Whistle Stop. We'd love to hear what you think. Leave us a review in the iTunes Store. That helps us spread the word. And the things you say on social media really do give us a boost with the rosiness in our cheeks. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. The managing producer of Slate Podcast is June Thomas. Our Whistle Stop Crackerjack researcher is Brian Rosenwald. He's one of the editors-in-chief of Made by History, a Washington Post history section. And man, he kept the, the Google Doc folders full on this one. What a delight. And Elizabeth Hinson was there every step of the way, chasing down all the obscure requests, making sure that I stayed on the beam. A constant source of assistance. And thanks also to Alan Pang and all the good folks at CBS Radio who helped make this episode happen on CBS. And thanks for listening. We'll be back with another episode of Tip and the Gipper. For now, I'm John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. I'll talk to you soon.